The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Now that you have seen the evidence of the woman's guilt, Captain, neither you nor anyone aboard your vessel will have cause to question Dorian justice. Koldor, you have judged and sentenced the woman without even hearing what she has to say. You've held dozens of innocent people on a peaceful vessel hostage and subjected them to extraordinary cruelty. You call that justice? Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, May 20th, 2021. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Our opener from the 1980s TV series Buck Rogers in the 25th century sadly reflects the state of injustice and tyranny in Canada and many other parts of the world today in the 21st century. Which brings those of us who prefer to live in a free and just society back to the big question. What can we do about once again making Canada free beyond just talking about it or protesting about it? Let's explore the possibilities, shall we? And we will begin right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform, and visit us at justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and our archive broadcasts. As always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Now, today's show is somewhat of a continuation of our show two weeks ago, Winning Back Our Freedom and Why Philosophy Matters. You know, as more and more people awaken to the tyrannical reality of the global lockdowns, a great dilemma presents itself. Without a political option that will guarantee individual freedom on principle, this tyranny will never end. To Canadians who want to end the lockdowns and other tyrannical rules and regulations, there are currently only two political parties in the nation opposed to them on principle. Federally, the choice is the People's Party of Canada under the leadership of Maxime Bernier, and provincially, in the province of Ontario, it is the Freedom Party of Ontario under the leadership of Paul McKeever. And then there are a handful of independent MPs and MPPs expelled from the caucuses of their so-called conservative parties, both federally and provincially, and I just had to kick off the show by sharing this despicable and unconscionable criticism of Ontario MPP Randy Hillier, which appeared in the National Post section of our own London Free Press on May 8th. Written by Kelly Egan, the headline read, Hillier has a right to his wacky conviction, but people are dying. And I quote, I like Randy Hillier as a pushy populist. I like him less as a public menace. Maybe this is harsh, but it's been a harsh few days. One of our newspaper pals, Dave Dutton, was lost to COVID-19 at age 69, the last 28 years of which we worked in the same building. Dave was a country guy, one of Hillier's constituents in the Lanark area, someone Hillier is supposed to represent and serve. Today, Dave doesn't have the luxury of debating the merits of masks or the perils of lockdowns or hear any more prattle about our right to be free. 
And so, it is not just confounding to see Hillier, a community leader sworn to represent others, at no-mask, anti-restrictions rallies or illegal church services. On death's heels, it is enraging, end quote. Yeah, it's enraging, all right. Kelly Egan is literally blaming Hillier for the death of Mr. Dutton, who if Dutton actually did die of COVID-19 and not just with COVID-19 on top of a number of comorbidities, probably did so because our healthcare system wouldn't give him the therapeutic treatments like hydroxychloroquine, zinc, and all of the other remedies we've been discussing on this show for the past year. Or he died from either having received the so-called COVID vaccine or from being in the proximity of someone else who was so vaccinated, possibly even one of the healthcare workers who was supposed to be treating him. But one certainty is that he didn't die because of anything anyone else did elsewhere in the province. So Egan's blaming Hillier for any COVID deaths is reprehensible and offensive. Even more offensive is Egan's rejection of debating the merits of masks or the perils of lockdowns or to hear any more prattle about our right to be free. Quite frankly, it seems to me that if such a debate were allowed, and if the rest of us retained our individual rights and freedoms, I would bet that Mr. Dutton might still be alive today, all other things being equal. Quote, When he was booted from the Doug Ford caucus, we sat on his porch on a July day and talked it out in the Perth back county. He wasn't sad, he was happy, now free to pick his own fights. But when the pandemic struck, it all got weird. He was a skeptic of government steps from the beginning. Soon he was full of charts and studies about how the testing was fraught with errors. The modeling was hysterical. The spread of fear was unsupportable and the real cost of lockdowns was not accounted for. All of which is both true and false. All of which is both true and false? Then, in addition to his inability to apply any logic or reason to his outrageous contradictions, Egan goes on to demonstrate his utter ignorance about the whole COVID scam to a degree that is unforgivable, given the overwhelming evidence to the exact contrary of what he writes. And I quote, So a new question arose. What do we do with him, holder of an office that typically uses mainstream media as a democratizing tool? On the one hand, it was our job to encourage free expression and be respectful of dissent. On the other, it was not to publish nonsense that would potentially harm people in a health crisis that was continually evolving. In the end, it really came to this. Do we trust an army of experts from all health fields in many countries about COVID-19 precautions and analysis, or a renegade politician who trained as an electrician and never much liked government to begin with? End quote. You know, it's simply stunning to me that Egan could possibly suggest that the mainstream media ever encourages free expression or respect for dissent. I mean, his own commentary is exhibit A in this regard. And as to an army of experts, numbering in the thousands, all agree that the virus is nothing to fear and nothing to warrant lockdowns. The renegade politicians are the handful of sociopaths forcing these lockdowns on a completely innocent and healthy people in an unprecedented and immoral action. And referring to Hillier as someone who trained as an electrician and never liked government to begin with is called an ad hominem attack, the kind used by people who have nothing concrete to offer. And we continue, quote, But when he starts encouraging defiance of the rules, even more when he baits people trying to do the right thing, I mean, a Nazi reference to the third wave, surely he has lost sight of his core function, public service and obeying the law unselectively, end quote. 
So, if it's the job of politicians to obey laws unselectively, then if there's a Nazi-type law that says kill all the, you know, fill in the blanks, Egan would be on the side of the fascists. Quote, Instead, he has polarized his riding, turned other community leaders against him, had cops running around slapping him with multiple charges, had recall petitions started. That's leadership in a crisis, end quote. You bet. That is leadership, not followership. Now, unfortunately, the next subject of my criticism is an individual I very much like, respect, and usually agree with on about 80% of his commentaries, and that's online commentator Frank Vaughn. But since his candidacy for the People's Party of Canada in the last Canadian federal election, Frank has been making some very negative comments about both the PPC and its leader, Maxime Bernier, that more than anything else seem to reveal a basic misunderstanding about the nature of political parties. It's a misunderstanding that is unfortunately shared by many people. And so, as a founder of a political party myself, I feel obligated to address and correct some of his most repeated misconceptions, as summarized in the following two commentaries by Frank, as expressed on May 2nd and May 4th. It's just the latest bad judgment call from the people who manage the People's Party of Canada, and it's not the members. And there's, there's people who like what I say, and there's people who don't like what I say, but at the end of the day, I've been fighting for the members since day one, and the things I said in 2019 about the need for a new political party in this country have not changed. We still need new and better political options here in Canada. But the PPC was supposed to be a people's party. It was supposed to have a constitution. It was supposed to have a national council. It was supposed to have the proper foundational structure that political parties have, and it was supposed to do it right. Instead, what you got was excuse after excuse after excuse. The members still have no say. They have no control. If Max walks away tomorrow morning, they can't get their party back because it's not their party. It's the board of directors' party. And so I fight for the members' rights in their own people's party, as was promised to them when it was started. And I'm the bad guy. And I'm going to keep on being the bad guy because I know I'm not the bad guy. I'm the good guy. A friend of mine explained it to me or put it in words and said that we're so demoralized, the facts and the figures and the statistics and, and all the evidence in the world isn't going to move people. They want to believe, even if deep down in their heart, they know that what they're believing in is false. It explains why so many people are still following Max Bernier, even though he isn't going to give the members any say in the People's Party of Canada, even though he promised a constitution two years ago and he hasn't delivered it, people will still believe in it because they lack for a better option in their minds, and they're desperate for hope. And I'm not a believer in false hope. And by the way, you don't need politics. This is another, let's, let's set all party stuff aside. You don't need politicians and politics and political parties to make an impact in your lives and in the lives of your nation and your neighbors. It's just that my brain can't stop processing what's happening, and I can't believe where I am. It all feels so surreal. It feels like everything's falling apart all around as people are losing their reason. And even within my own group of friends and family, I can present so many facts. And all the facts and all the figures and all the sources, all the references, all the educated people in the world that I can put in front of them doesn't make a lick of difference in terms of their final thought outcome. That weighs on me. It robs me of my sleep. Yeah, you put that stuff in front of them and they just, whoosh, blinders are on. If I take the shot, I'm going to get my freedoms back. Or the other thing is, if I take the shot, I got to take the shot because I don't want my life to be inconvenienced, you know. 
And the fact that so many people will just willingly get injected with something they don't even understand and they resist understanding it. They're so desperate, okay? They're so demoralized. They're so broken. Their routines have been so disrupted that they're just like, yeah, stick me with whatever you want as long as there's a promise that I'll get something back. And I celebrate people like Derek Sloan and Randy Hillier who are doing it. Randy's building a wall of charges that he's going to have to go to court and face. And I saw Derek Sloan uh, stream the police serving him for the first time. So he's going to go to court too for his convictions. I appreciate honest men like that. I don't like charlatans. I don't like people who just show up after everybody's done the hard work to claim credit and try and get donations. But you can do that quiet work. And I've been doing a lot of that quiet work. And it's going to get loud again. It's almost time to get loud again. And politically, I talked about the viability or the desire for separatism and the desire for Maverick to do the job. And also how offensive I find it when, when a guy like Bernier and the PPC, they go out there and they basically tell you, don't vote in your own interest. Give us your votes and just vote provincially for separatists or whatever. Where somebody asked if the federal government, if the PPC was in charge of the federal government, would they step in at the provincial level to do something about this lockdown stuff? Would they do anything? And the PPC's answer was no, we wouldn't do anything. Because the PPC likes to hide behind the Constitution. Number one, they won't open the Constitution, so they don't want to actually solve any of the problems with Confederation. They just want to use the totalitarian power of the federal government to shove their policies into place, which somebody, upon replacing them, can take away. It's not that I'm disengaged. People think, you know, you left the PPC and now you're not engaged. I'm engaged. Now, I'm going to help people with good causes. Deeds, not words, should be your guide. Deeds are my guide now. I gave the PPC the benefit of the doubt. I gave Max the benefit of the doubt. I trusted his word, and I trusted his intent. And I trusted it with an expiration date. I am never going to dive into something as deep and as trusting as I did that project. Because it was a total letdown. And the people left are desperate. Now, these people who hate my guts now, I was their hero until I started telling a truth that they didn't like. So back to the point, there's political causes already in place and growing and coming in this country with better leaders and good people whose deeds speak louder than their words. And there are people in this country who are good people, and I'm going to help them. But there's good people involved in Maverick. There's good people involved in Wild Rose. There's probably good people still involved with the PPC, the CPC, and the UPC, and the PC Party of Ontario. And they're who I'm going to focus on. And I'm going to fight the bad people. I'm going to do good things. That's my plan. And that's where I'm going to focus my energy. But for now, I've put my time and treasure into this website. And though I'm sometimes not very good at updating it, which I can't promise is going to improve because i got all these things I need to do to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. Before I can even figure out what I'm going to do with my life, I have things I have to do and put in place so that I can even think. <sighs> I share the frustration that Frank expressed when attempting to convince otherwise intelligent people about the pitfalls and dangers of the COVID-19 vaccines. No question. 
But there are so many misconceptions in his comments about political parties and political action that I could spend an hour on each of them. And I've had over 40 years of experience on the so-called fringes of political activity, and I've made every mistake in the book. I have repeatedly offered the benefit of my experience to anyone who asks, but you know, nobody asks. They all prefer to make the same mistakes that I have witnessed over and over and over again. And when Frank says he's offended by Maxime Bernier's refusal to interfere in provincial jurisdictions, all he's really saying is that he disagrees with this policy, which in turn means that if so, he joined the wrong party in the first place, and that's fair enough. But here are the basic problems. There is a common misconception among voters and would-be candidates everywhere that political parties are democratic institutions, or worse, that they are somehow owned by the party supporters. This is utterly false and could not be otherwise because to open any organization to the lowest common denominator, often called mob rule, would simply destroy any principles upon which that party is based. Unless, of course, it's based on mob rule, which is precisely the true nature of the Liberal Party of Canada. The New Democratic Party, for all its evil, is truly a principled party compared to the Liberals, but its principles are those of collectivism. The Conservative Party of Canada is, is a floating political abstraction, attempting to be the big tent party for all brands of what is being called conservatism, quote-unquote, a term that has lacked any objective, agreed-to meaning ever since I've been in politics. Fiscal conservatives, social conservatives, religious conservatives, libertarian conservatives, and others who simply want to vote against the Liberal Party. The fundamental values of these varying groups can be radically different from one another. And a house divided cannot stand, and the Conservative Party cannot stand as a Conservative Party, if that word's to have any meaning at all. For anyone interested in seeing a proper constitution and foundational structure of a political party, check out the Freedom Party of Ontario online. Freedom Party was already operating for years before our Constitution was finally approved by the executive, who in fact do, quote-unquote, own the party. And here's a fact that's tough to take for a lot of people. Political parties are private associations, quote-unquote, owned and controlled by their founders, and anyone is free to found a political party if they choose to do so. I have personally invested 40 years plus of my time and effort into Freedom Party, and there's no way that my effort and my investment suddenly is owned by those who simply offer their support for the party. If they support the party, it's because they support the party's goals or principles. Period. They're free to withdraw their support at any time. Freedom Party was founded on the principle of individual rights and freedom. If there are those who want to water down those principles by quote-unquote joining and thinking that they can simply vote to direct the party in some other direction, then they're in the wrong party. And we have the right to kick them out, just as every other party has the right to do so if their members violate the principles on which they're founded. And when it comes to good people... I have seen more good people burned out and turned off of politics because they've joined bad parties, believing that they could somehow change the nature of a party that was founded on a given premise, and that's exactly what burns them out. It's tragic because it can't be done. But the last thing in the world I would want to be is a leader or president of a party that represents anything other than freedom. 
All the other parties represent isms of various sorts. Conservatism, liberalism, majoritarianism, libertarianism, communism, nihilism, fascism, collectivism, and no, capitalism isn't an ism but was labeled such by the likes of Karl Marx who wanted to politicize capital, which is not an ideology or a philosophy, and to bring capital down to the level of Marxism. It simply refers to a free market that naturally arises in any society that holds individual freedom as its highest ideal. The false notion that political parties are democratic institutions confuses the party with the broader democratic marketplace in which parties function. They're two separate things. This is why Frank Vaughn falsely believes that the Electoral District Association, a local branch of any given party, should be able to override the top party executive. Even Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson expressed this sentiment when she attempted to run for the Conservative Party of Canada and the party's top brass rejected her because of her views on abortion and gender issues. And of course, we already know what happened to our own Salim Mansour, who, even though he is a Muslim, was rejected by the CPC for being an Islamophobe. And then, of course, there was Herbert and Henry Hildebrand, who had their Conservative Party memberships cancelled because of an issue with which the CPC disagreed. And here's David Menzies speaking to Herbert back on March 23rd. The question now arises, why, oh why, would the Conservative Party of Canada have a grudge against Mr. Hildebrandt. And joining me now is Herbert Hildebrandt from Elmer, Ontario. Thank you so much for joining me, uh, Herbert. And I was astonished by this. Um, for some reason, a man of God like yourself, a man who speaks out for freedom, is persona non grata with the Conservative Party of Canada. What are we talking about here? Yeah, it's uh, it's remarkable uh, where we've come to. I was actually surprised uh, when I got the letter uh, last month uh, notifying me that, you know, I was going to be suspended for 60 days pending a membership review, including my father. And then we got the official notice saying that, uh, yes, they were indeed suspending uh, both my membership and my father's, Pastor Henry. And they would not provide a reason why, simply saying that uh, under Section 3 and 5 of their, um, you know, bylaws that they had the right to do so and had were ch choosing to move forward with a membership revocation. What do you think is the unspoken strategy by the Conservative Party of Canada to say uh, you are persons non grata? Of course, all we can go off is the circumstantial evidence, which is pretty hefty, in that Aaron O'Toole seems to be making sure that he's purging any voices that may not align with his new pale pink imitation of the liberal strategy, which is to be a media darling, but not uh, the truth, but uh, mainstream media, right? And that... You saw Derek Sloan getting removed from caucus. I had just applied for a position as a delegate in the upcoming uh, virtual convention that's going to be held next week. And as soon as my name was forward for a few days, uh, we got these letters. So we assume that there's some correlation there that uh, they perceive that to be a threat. Uh, all I, you know, we really were working on as a group was to put forward a policy suggestion that churches be declared an essential service, that we could uh, move forward in if there was future lockdowns imposed by the government, that we would uh, not have to go through these measures that we see right now. Uh, you know, Pastor James Coates being in jail, my father uh, having upwards of 15 charges for holding church services. Wow, this is amazing uh, to me, Herbert. From what I can tell, 
Walmart and uh, Costco and the Liquor Control Board of Ontario, they're all essential. But when it comes to people who want to go to a place of worship, this is considered so egregious in the eyes of the Conservative Party right now that you must be shunned. This is staggering to me, my friend. It is. And uh, it's sad that it has come to this. You know, and it's just amazing to me, Herbert, how incestuous things are. I mean, by that, I mean, if you look at Melissa Lansman, who used to be in the war room of Doug Ford, then went off to be a lobbyist for Walmart Canada to make sure 100 percent they would not be affected in any way by the lockdown. And she got her way. Her nickname is Lockdown Lansman, goes to bat for Walmart, but uh, <laughs> not the mom stores. And she's running to be the Conservative Party of Canada. Canada, a candidate in the riding of Thornhill. And I'm sure Aaron O'Toole uh, is uh, fully enamored of this person. It, does it sometimes seem that the world is upside down to you? It does. Uh, it, it really does. And, and you and your father, two men of God, uh, good people. I've met you. I've met me many members of your congregation, just fantastic individuals. You're to be shunned. There's something wrong with you. And yet... Aaron O'Toole hires on uh, Jake Enright, the former executive of Huawei Canada. To me, Herbert, I'm sorry, it almost seems like he's trying to throw this election. It does. It does. Um, and David, really, there's too much happening for this to be a coincidence. Aaron O'Toole's entire way of dealing with the last six months, he was elected based on a lie we know now because he said one thing and is doing entirely another. So I can only call it what it is, a lie. Uh, he is also um, choosing sides. Are we aligning ourselves with the Chinese Communist Party or are we aligning ourselves with democracy and freedom, which is enshrined in our Charter of Rights and Freedoms and Bill of Rights and through a long, centuries-long hist history um, in the English-speaking world and now is choosing to throw that and, and bringing in, like you said, the Huawei executive going the opposite way. It's, it's like he's running away from freedom. I think what's happening here is that People in the war room of Aaron O'Toole got to him. Uh, these are young, woke, virtue signaling types. They're basically saying, listen, the West is a lock. We can take them for granted. Let us shift left, 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 and try to win over the hearts and minds of the Laurentian elites in Ottawa, Montreal, and Toronto. But that's exactly what Andrew Scheer did in 2019. And David, I think that's that's entirely true. And it's also sad that they're willing to, as they say, sell their soul to the devil in order to try to win an election. I don't know exactly what he's trying to do, because it seems to me that when uh, you're in the muddy middle, you don't get anything. It, it, nothing's accomplished. You should be standing up for principles. Truth always prevails in the end. Standing for what's right is always right, no matter if others think it's wrong. 
And what we're seeing right now in Aaron O'Toole is an entire abrogation of his leadership. I can tell you anecdotally, when I go to these anti-lockdown protests and these people are as anti-Justin Trudeau as you can get, but you bring up the alternative, you know, brand X, uh, Aaron O'Toole, and there's nothing but disappointment. They're either going to decline their ballot, spoil their ballot, stay at home, but they can't vote for liberal light. I think in the next election, based on what I'm hearing from the conservative base, this is going to be a slaughter. David, what we're seeing is we're beginning to see a movement of renewal away from the mess of partisan politics. Uh, what we really need is we need a few hundred independent representatives in Ottawa, in Ontario, in our provincial legislatures to rise up and say, I am going to lead for the people but I'm going to do the right thing no matter what. And when that happens, and if you see that happening, and I think you see that you've got Derek Sloan as an independent, you've got uh, Randy Hillier as an independent MPP, they are beginning to do what the people are begging them to do, which is stand up for what's right and forget the brand, just stand up for what you believe and be transparent, be honest with us. Let's take the system down the way it is and refresh it renew it, build it up from the ground up with integrity. You know, I'd like to think that could happen and that could be true, Herbert, but, you know, provincially with the PC party under Doug Ford, well, you mentioned Randy Hillier, there's uh, Belinda Carajolios, uh, there is uh, Roman Baber. Look what happened to them when they stood up on principle. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And let me make it perfectly clear from the outset that I am truly offended by the lockdowns of churches and that this kind of fascism is completely unacceptable. However, if a member of Freedom Party were to propose a policy suggestion that churches be declared an essential service, we would allow that suggestion to be heard, but would be forced to refuse such a policy on principle. Our Constitution would not allow it. The idea of allowing some groups in society to be declared essential while other groups do not share the same status and freedom is unacceptable. Freedom Party would act as if all consensual activity in society is essential, never creating special status for some groups over others. You just don't do that. Special exemption status is not freedom by any stretch of the imagination. Freedom belongs to everyone or to no one. When another person's rights are violated, so are yours. But that aside, I generally support the opinions that the muddled middle is nowhere and that principles, truth, and standing for what's right is what politics should be about. But judging Aaron O'Toole on any values of freedom is to fail to identify the nature of Aaron O'Toole and the Conservative Party. But a few hundred independent representatives is an untenable approach because you can't just forget the brand. You need a new brand, usually taking some form of a political party, as the means to identify those who are all on the same page. How else can you do it? And if ending lockdowns is a single issue that these independents would share, just watch the chaos that results should their goal be accomplished, because on every other issue the odds of finding common ground are astronomical, and that coalition will disintegrate before our very eyes. And if you think I don't know what I'm talking about, we shall once again go back in time, as we coincidentally did last week, to the left, right, and center portion of an April 12, 2006 episode of The Jim Chapman Show. What made this episode unique is that Jim was unable to host the show that day, and instead, my usual opponent on the left, 
Jeff Schlemmer, hosted the show and interviewed me about how I got involved in politics and about all of the mistakes and lessons I learned along the way. Thanks for staying with us. I'm uh, delighted today to uh, to welcome Bob Metz, uh, as we've done for almost a decade now, I think. Pretty close. Closing in on it. Never like this. Yeah, no, this is something new. Well, it's, it's good to do. New, new is Who's good. Who's the ref around here? Keeps us from know. getting bored. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we're having left and right today, but no center. So uh, we'll see how this goes. And I, But I thought that this was a, an opportunity for me to do something that I've been interested in doing for years, and I don't know that we've ever really talked about this, and that is that uh, you and I have been debating political issues, as I say, for the better part of a decade, but I don't know that I've ever really sat down to find out um, a bit of a bit about you and a bit about sort of how you've come to the to the views that you have and uh, and what your influences were and so on. And I wonder if I could maybe start, Bob, by asking you've been quote right on our show for years as I've been quote left. Mm-hmm. And we know it's a lot more complicated than that. That uh, those are broad labels that we put on things, but there's all kinds of nuance in our views on on whatever the issue is. And and can you can you give me kind of a broad strokes of sort of you know how would you sum up your political philosophy? Well, basically, it's I, na- I named the party I founded based on that philosophy, the Freedom Party. And uh, the party began uh, quite, uh, not by my intention, but by a series of circumstances I found myself in, involved with uh, some notorious people around town and some not-so-notorious people who got me involved in politics at a time when I was really apolitical. Um, back in the uh, late 70s and early 80s, uh, I was a senior corporate accountant for a large trust company in town here called Canada Permanent Trust, which is, wasn't that permanent even after its 150-year <laughs> history. It's now part of Canada Trust after a long series of acquisitions and things like that. But nevertheless, and this was a period of 22% interest rates under Pierre Trudeau, whom I was a big fan of, so I wasn't right all really? my life. And then I started investigating like what was the cause behind this, the things that were happening in my workplace. And you know, I was dealing in finances and savings, and uh, I was just the accountant, but I got to see every every branch and every department, which was a very unique position. And no matter what the answer was, always turned out to be something to do with government. And so I started looking into government. And uh, next thing I know, I'm suddenly getting involved with government thanks to uh, a notorious local character, Mark Emery, yeah. who uh, basically talked me into running for a political party I'd never heard of before <laughs> called the Libertarian <laughs> Party on a Friday night. <laughs> and uh, had me registered Monday morning. And uh, I, honest to goodness, I did not know the difference between left, right, center, up or down at that time. And uh, nor did I know what a libertarian was at the time. But I, I was always a little bit uncomfortable with that libertarian label in any specific sense. In the broad sense, I, that's why I never really joined the, quote, libertarian party. Right. Because there was a fundamental difference there. And it mostly has to do with, uh, if you get right down the philosophy, moral relativism versus the fact of, of what we believe there are black and whites in in the world and of a more of a moral absolutism with regard to some issues. Yeah. So... Uh can can you tell me a bit then? Mark Emery, of course, was a was a very prominent uh, feature in London for years and years until mm-hmm. he until he went to the big stage. Well, he went to Singapore for a while, I believe. Well, he he left the country for a while, went over and over to Southeast Asia, came back and became notorious as the Prince of Pot, which, by the way, was not an issue he was involved with uh, back in the Freedom Party days. And uh, so, I guess after he went over to Asia and came back, he embarked on this other career. But Mark and I, uh, you know, we always had this certain common respect for individuals freedom again there was always a difference between the two of us and I was found mark a little bit more anarchistic than myself and so uh, those fundamental differences 
were always in place, but we were like the Lennon and McCartney of the new political movements at the time. <laughs> and uh, as opposed to the Lennon well. and uh, and uh, Stalin. Yeah, for the, you know, for the first, um, I would say for the first 15, 20 years, and I said this on CFPL TV, which uh, I believe the video is going to be available on our one of our websites soon, www.freedomparty.on.ca. Well, now, and and I have to say about you that, that you're somebody who really walks the walk in addition to talking the talk, that it sounds like your life changed quite a bit from the days in the corporate world to what you're doing now. Oh, it did. In fact, I quite consciously took the, the decision to, to do what I was doing now. As I said, uh, you know, 20 years ago, I went on record saying that it'd probably be 20 years before anybody ever even heard of Freedom Party. I understood the realities. I saw the Libertarian Party. I saw the other small parties. And I realized the weight of inertia of the giant parties because I worked in a corporation. I know what the mechanisms are like. I yeah. can see the, the, the slowness of it. You know, it's a big thing that you're dealing with. And to, to, to get people to switch an idea overnight, at first I believe such a thing was possible. I don't anymore. It's a different process than I thought at the time. But because I knew we were sort of, quote, unelectable, especially starting as a new political entity, we put a lot of our time into lobbying on issues, and Freedom Party was the only party that lobbied in favor of Sunday shopping, and we put ads and papers around the province, and sure enough, a few months later, despite the opposition of all three parties in the legislature, we had Sunday shopping. We uh, we were well known on tax issues. Mark Emery and uh, myself and a few other people got in on these things called BIAs, which were propping up around the province, uh, sort of a fourth level of tax for certain municipal areas and different areas hundreds of them. And Is amazingly, that a business improvement area or something? Yes, that was the, uh, in fact, because of our campaign, they've changed the name of it, uh, even though legislatively they're supposed to refer to them as BIAs, but now they call them downtown business associations, right. yeah. which they are not, by the way. London has one. It's not an association. It's a taxpayer-funded government created entity, you know. But anyways, we, we discovered you could beat the tax man and you could beat City Hall every now and then. And in my own personal life, I wasn't only involved with uh, the Freedom Party. I was one of the founding members along with Jim Montag of the London Middlesex Taxpayers Coalition, of the Ontario Taxpayers Coalition with the late uh, George Lansons, who uh, passed on but was really got quite a rep going on that. Um, we were involved with uh, Hold All London Taxes. I was on the directory of that too, which had the largest single protest in the city of London. I think people have forgotten about that. There were over 5,000 people in uh, Red Square, Red, Red Square, Square, Square. Yeah, yeah. protesting taxes. An, an unprecedented event in the city of London, and how quickly we forget. But uh, it had its impact, and I know I've had, through so many smaller issues, which are pretty methodically um, documented online and had tremendous effect in the lobbying sense of actually getting results and that was what I wanted to take to the voter before I went to ask them for a vote I said look I got a track record we know what we're doing we understand the issues and we've shown that we've had an effect so now maybe pretty soon it'll be time to give us a chance to kick it a can and this is and just be clear this this is your occupation your full-time uh, uh more or less yes i uh, i almost consider myself retired or self-employed <laughs> in some ways uh, this is not a career to get into if you want to make a fortune that's for sure. um you almost have to take a, a vow of poverty in certain ways i'm fortunate that i'm in a good position now and freedom party itself has been doing better every year since we started in 84 so i kept looking at that and i'm thinking well each year we're doing better than the year before well and so, again you've you know they talk about the best job is the one you create for yourself and uh, uh, I've heard it said you know if you can take your hobby and make it into your job that's the best type of thing and oh absolutely in some and, respects and you're, you've done that but but again as you say there are sacrifices in doing that it well takes a I certain think idealism if you like I, I know what you mean it's you know I, I don't like to use the word sacrifice there it's a uh, sort of a price I've paid and it's it's a price I was willing to pay I trade it up well we're going to take a break for a minute and pay some bills here and we'll be right back with uh, Bob Metz 
And we're back on the Jim Chapman News Hour with your host today, Jeff Schlemmer and Bob Metz. We are left and right with no center today. And uh, I said at the at the start, it's all over the place. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I said in some respects, it, it, it's kind of like the United States politics, where theoretically there's a left and right. Although in s- other people, I think, would argue the Democrats and Republicans are more alike than dislike, uh, sort of squished in the middle. Most well, of the time. I'm glad you brought that up because, of course, that's a view I share. I share the view that. Uh, not only in the states are the Democrats and Republicans alike, but in Canada, the Liberals, Conservatives, and the New, New Democrats are basically all alike. All of them think that it's up to them to run the health care system, to run the education system, and to deny f- certain fundamental freedoms and choices to individuals who should be able to have options within those spheres themselves. They all believe in higher taxes and rationing, whereas our approach is lower taxes, a better life, and no rationing, because there wouldn't be any lineups to be worried about, which is the case where you have that. All the other parties see welfare and, quote, helping the poor, end quote, as their major function. We see it as a peripheral function. And under the guise of what the other parties call helping the poor, what they're really promoting is not helping the poor. Quite the opposite. They're promoting universality, which is helping everybody. So it's not like only the poor get help in health care. Everybody gets it. It's not like only the poor get help in education. Everybody gets it for, quote, free, which, of course, isn't free and is costing us a pretty penny right now. So is there a a, a kind of a statement of philosophy or a way that you could kind of uh, generally kind of set out what's different about the Freedom Party, where they come from? Well, in, in Freedom Party, you pay for what you get and you get what you pay for. In the other parties, you pay for what you don't get and you don't get what you pay for. And I know that might sound right in a way, but it's absolutely true. It's what's happening. Uh, he who pays a piper calls a tune. If you expect the government to give you what you want, um, that's just not going to happen. If you, you know, if you want to get what you want, you're the guy that's got to pay it somewhere down the line. The issue of helping people who can't help themselves is, is a much broader one than, than, than the little issues that politicians like to you know, cut the pie up in. For example, they'll talk about farmers' interests, workers' interests, uh, re- homeowners' interests, renters' interests. Well, you might be any one or any number of those things at one given time. And so what they do is they almost pitch yourself against yourself. They're going to rob one of your pockets to put money in the other one. And that's really where most government growth has occurred lately is in what they call a transfer of wealth. Even now, I believe the federal government's just putting out a report about wanting to equalize the provinces more and equalize the country. Well, that's, to, to us, in Freedom Party, that's an immoral concept. You don't equalize people just because some people have taken the actions and been in a circumstance to, to be more prosperous than others. I mean, the fact that I chose, for example, my style of living doesn't obligate you to bring, to bring me up to whatever income you have. So, like, uh, would it be uh, an element of that then, for instance, that you're saying you kind of let the market decide where, where where things go? Like, for instance, I always wonder if there wasn't equalization payments, what would Newfoundland do? Uh, what would what would your party do with Newfoundland? It's interesting because there was an, uh, a, a really good documentary, I think it was on CBC, that drew a comparison between uh, Newfoundland that went for federation with, with the country and became a, a welfare recipient and Iceland, which went the other way. And it's night and day. When they both started, they both started off in relatively the same economic and climate conditions, everything. And today, I guess, Newfoundland's the economic basket case. Iceland's doing great. And I think that's the problem with dependency is that dependency works fine if if everyone else in the country has the ability to support the dependent. But when they become dependents themselves and everyone, you know, all you're doing is spreading the poverty around. You're not spreading the wealth. You cannot spread wealth. Wealth has to be created. And that's the problem with all of the major parties today. They see the world as a fixed pie, 
There's only so much money to go around. There's only so many services, and that it's their job to cut up that pie and decide who gets what piece. And that's totally contrary to reality. In reality, the world is an infinite pie. And the way that everybody gets more is to bake bigger and bigger pies and more and more pies. And that's what works. That's why the poorest person in a country that's very productive is better off than a poor person who's in a country that's unproductive, like a communist backward socialist country and we always you know you can always relate socialism and communism to poorer economic conditions and uh, why we embrace these philosophies after looking at the hard evidence of how disastrous they are is not an economic thing it's a moral thing so can I ask you a bit, if, if you don't mind, uh, not prying too far, what would you say are some of your influences in, in switching from being a Trudeau fan to uh, to coming to this this philosophy that would be very, kind of the opposite of a, a Trudeau vision, I would think? When I was a Trudeau fan and a liberal, I, I was still in that situation where I didn't know what politics was about. I had a sense of things. I had a sense of this. I mean, you couldn't argue if the nation had no business in the bedrooms, or the government had no business in the bedrooms of the nation. Yeah. However, what I didn't realize at the time when Trudeau said that was that he was moving the government into every other room in the house, <laughs> right? So that we can't afford our, you know, everything from our electricity right on down to our health care and education. But I didn't realize what Trudeau was about at the time. I had no concept what he was about. And the thing that really opened my eyes was uh, having jumped into the fire and agreed uh, when Mark Emery asked me to run politically. The next thing I know, the media is calling me up for an opinion that I did not have. <laughs> and so I said, Mark, what am I going to do? And he hands me this book, and it's by this person I never heard of before called Ayn Rand. And she had a book called Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. I only read three chapters out of it, which were related to federal issues at the time, mostly dealing with monopolies and energy crisis crises and things like that, which were really big issues in the 70s. And I formulated some ideas. It all made eminent sense to me. Formulated some ideas about him, gave a speech at a businessman's luncheon during my first election campaign, got standing ovations everywhere I went. And um, people would always tell me that I was great in this, but I'd never get invited back. And I always wondered why. <laughs> and that was because I understood later that what I was saying ran in direct conflict with a lot of the interests that were putting these events on, for example. You know, liberals, conservatives, and new Democrats don't want to hear what we have to say. This is still my biggest and Freedom Party's biggest problem uh, today is getting on the stage. Once we're on the stage, we know we're going to soar. We've had evidence of this in the recent three by-elections, for example. TVO kept us off. Uh, Rogers locally put us on, and Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever, who's our current party leader now, and you should check this guy out too, he's something else, but he ran in Ajax Whitby there, and uh, when they did a poll on Rogers late, later, he was coming up with like 40, 48% of the popular vote on, an, on another poll. And so we know that that effect is there. This is another reason I, I stayed in this business, because I understand the dynamics of it, and people are always upset that, well, you don't get many votes, right? Well, it doesn't work that way. When you, when you break that, it, it's going to seem like overnight. Uh, for example, back in, our, I think it was our second election in the 80s, a fellow named Alan Weeble, who locally uh, was uh, both a Freedom Party supporter and had one foot in the PC camp. And there was a by-election going then, and apparently the Progressive Conservative Party at the time ran a poll in that riding to ask people who their second choice would be if they had a second choice. And he told us that Freedom Party came up number one for all three parties, whether they were NDP, <laughs> liberal, or conservative <laughs> supporters. And that told me something, that if a party, like you hear a lot of talk about 
PR and pr- pr- proportional representations and thing like that, things like that right now, which our party doesn't specifically support but would benefit greatly from. Right. You know, that, that's the kind of tension that's out there. And I think what happens is once, uh, if there's a party in place at a time when the government or when the, sorry, when the voters are finally sick enough of that government that's sitting in there, then that party punches through. And, you know, one of these mornings I want to see the look on, on the leader of Freedom Party's face just as surprised as the look on Bob Ray's face tonight that the NDP won that uh, majority government, right? right? Well, then I guess uh, I sort of wonder as you're talking about uh, the fact that it seems like most of the major parties that we talk about in North America at least uh, are vying for the center. They're, they're trying to push each other out of the middle because they perceive that that's where you get elected from. And in some respects, it sounds like your message, your party's message is, is more of a, a tough love in the sense that uh, we hear from the mainstream parties that essentially they will give you something for nothing. Uh, you know, that uh, they're going to give you, each party is going to give you lower taxes, they're going to give you more services, uh, not a problem, we're smarter than the other guys and we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, so in a, in a democracy where, first of all, you've got uh, only half of us voting, a lot of us not paying too close attention, we see, well, this party says they've got a smarter way to give us something for nothing. They're going to lower our taxes and give us more services. Why wouldn't we vote for them? How do you, how do you compete with that? You don't, and you don't even pretend to. Getting elected is not the same as, like, getting elected and democracy are two different things. Voting, for for example, is different from democracy. It's a different process. Most people who vote know either nothing or less than nothing about politics. And I don't mean that to be insulting. I mean it quite literally. It was either Mark Twain or somebody like him that said, uh, it's not what people don't know that makes them ignorant. It's what they do know that just ain't so. (laughs) And boy, if that was true in one field, it would be politics. People have just one myth after another that they believe about politics. And that was what was shattered for me when I actually got up in front of an audience the first time and went through the process once. And I'm thinking, don't these people know what's really going on here? You know, don't they know this is just a, you know, this is not what they think it is, isn't what it is. Okay. And, um, You know, one of the big uh, epiphanies for me, too, was that the realization that what government is, and this is the problem with most people in politics, they don't understand the nature of the government they're dealing with. I think of a little kid who you give a shotgun to, and he, you know, two-year-old, and he's shooting up the house with a shotgun, right? And he doesn't know it's not a toy, right? He's just shooting. you got to stay out of his way. That's how I think a lot of people are in politics of the other parties with government. They don't realize government is a gun. You don't go around doing charity with a gun. You don't go around doing good works with a gun. That's there for self-defense, and that's why we created governments. That's why Freedom Party thinks the government is basically that instrument of self-defense, the courts, the police, your your, your military, and, a, and, and a system of justice that goes with those things. Well, and I guess the other aspect, when you talk about uh, uh, people not knowing what, what government is or what politics are all about, by that do you mean the the, the, the machine behind the scenes to some extent, or are you talking about this? No, I mean, generally? if you ask the average person what's the policy of the Liberal Party, they couldn't tell you. Right. In fact, the average Liberal couldn't tell you because they have no policies most of the time. People vote on a gut feeling. So platforms mean absolutely nothing, not to getting voted. You have to have one. That's for the intellectuals, a few handful in the media who are sort of the second-handers who filter the, the, the information. But the actual thing of getting elected is more of creating a comfort zone for the, uh, for the public and making them understand that, A, you're not there to, to do anything to them, <laughs> but hopefully doing something for them, and that uh, they have nothing to fear in supporting whatever they think your party represents. Everybody thinks about the party they, they hold dear in different ways. It's almost like religion. 
Well, and that's interesting you mentioned that because for years we'd heard about Stephen Harper, for instance, that people didn't ha- didn't have a comfort level with him. And I look at a, at a Ralph Klein or a George Bush, where uh, they seem to be personable people. People mm-hmm. see them as somebody who who they could be friends with, and uh, it almost seems like they they forgive them a lot because they see them as well. This is my friend. He's fallible. He gets drunk, you know, or he, he's not the best at syntax, but he seems like a good guy. He's a good guy to hang out with. Uh, is that what people are voting for? Um, very much so, although it doesn't, necess- it, d- it doesn't necessarily make determine what they vote for. I mean, you and I get along fine, and yet we have differences of, of opinion on a number of issues. And i got to tell mm-hmm. you, even within Freedom Party, we have differences of opinions on a n- number of issues. What you end up doing is deciding how far, when you join an association or group, whichever one it is, that shares your point of view the most. And it doesn't even have to be necessarily a specific policy per se. It could just be uh, a feeling of a general philosophy behind things. Um, I think the thing that attracts most people to the liberals is the fact that the liberals spend a lot of money and they think that they benefit from that spending somehow. The fact is every dollar the government spends on you, they've got to take four or five away, right? So it doesn't. It, it never balances out. And uh, despite all the things governments have done over the years in the name of poverty and eliminating, I remember they wanted to get rid of child poverty by the year 2000. Right. Well, it's always worse because the, the methods they use become the end. It's not like you have this end, we're only going to use this method until we get reach our goal. The goal is never reached. Good. Well, our, our music is uh, playing, so I think our end is in wow. sight. Okay. And, uh, I'll leave it on <laughs> the goal is never reached. I'll leave it with that, Bob. <laughs> Thanks very much for this today. I really appreciate you, you uh, opening up well, on some of the background on this stuff. Carry on to chapter two next. It is true. We do get along. You can always get along and discuss these things. I'm, I'm glad you're involved in the political process. It makes it a more fun place to be. <laughs> Now, many of you know I have a history with the People's Party of Canada. I was one of their very first candidates. So let's bring on the Maxime Bernier. And I just thank you so much for joining us today, sir. Thank you very much, Laureline. I'm very pleased to be with you. What are some of the concerns that you see here in Canada at this time? First of all, I think we don't have any leadership. People who believe against the lockdowns, we have all our leaders at the national level and also at the provincial level that are... uh, putting more restriction on our lives. Uh, And that's why I think in the U.S., uh, people are looking at our country and they are laughing at us. Uh, We were supposed to be a a real democracy, uh, believing in individual freedom and freedom uh, of movement and all our freedoms that we don't have right now. Uh, You know, we need to reopen the economy. We need to reopen churches. We need to reopen schools. Uh, What they're doing right now, the federal government and all these uh, governments at the provincial level, uh, it's going against our freedom. It is unconstitutional. It is illegal. And it is hurting more people than solving uh, the problem that they created. Why do you think, Maxime, that there is such a lack of courage in Canada? It's it's way past just this stupid, heinous quarantine. You know, it's the businesses being destroyed. Why is a conservative government not standing on the top of the hills and mounting an offense? Why is it that you are the one who has the greatest voice at this time? 
because they don't have any principles. And, you know, it's not working. You just saw the pool and, and uh, you know, it's going down. Aaron O'Toole is going down and Justin Trudeau is going up a little bit because people in Ontario don't trust him, you know. He's changing minds every time. But I can tell you, I know Aaron O'Toole and I know that he's a red Tory. He's not a real conservative. He, he's trying to please people in Ontario. But at the same time, he's losing people out west, and he's he, he's not speaking about the Western alienation that is, uh, is is real. I was in Alberta a couple of weeks ago, and I had delivered a speech on the on the real decentralization of our country, radical decentralization, to fight uh, the disunity that we have right now. People in the west, people in the east, and so it's all divided by gender, by race, by by region. So you need to have a policy that will unite everybody. And Aaron O'Toole doesn't want to speak about that. And that's the most important challenge that we are having in our country right now. Vote for what you believe in, to vote for your values, and stop to vote against something. You know, last time they tried that. They voted against Justin Trudeau. They, they voted for the Conservative Party of Canada. And you know what? They had Justin Trudeau. Maybe Justin Trudeau will be in government after the next general election. Uh, but if we don't support our values, we will never win. We need to win. And to win, it's by voting for what we believe in. And that's uh, that's the politics that we're doing at the People's Party. We, have, we are fighting for real conservative values, individual freedom, personal responsibility, respect and fairness. And we're doing politics differently. I'm not looking at the poll to know what to say to Canadians and to repeat what they want to hear. You know, I try to convince Canadians that we have the best ideas. And I strongly believe that we have the best ideas because it's the basic of the Western civilization. When you believe in people, when you believe in, in, in freedom, you cannot be wrong. And we're not wrong. We just need to be out there and to expose our program to the population. And I'm very pleased, Laura Lynn, that you've given me that uh, privilege today. That, of course, was Laura Lynn Tyler Thompson in conversation with Maxime Bernier, leader of the only other party in Canada that I could morally and politically support. You simply can't go wrong if your message is about freedom. Now, in stark contrast to freedom, I remember when I first got into politics, the phrase, sharing is the great Canadian tradition. That was the slogan of the Liberal Party of Canada. But as I pointed out at the time, sharing is a voluntary action, possible only by the person who owns that which is about to be shared. Of course, the Liberal plan was really to share what you earned with those who would vote for them in exchange for the stolen goods. You know, it was that era's version of you'll own nothing and be happy. But finally, here is the fundamental political problem in Canada. And I got this from listener Bill T. out in B.C., who sent me the following comments. He writes, Some people have the vocabulary to sum up things in a way that you can quickly understand them. This quote came from the Czech Republic. Someone over there has it figured out. It was translated into English from an article in a Prague newspaper. And I quote, The danger to Canada is not Justin Trudeau, but a citizenry capable of entrusting a man like him as Prime Minister. It will be far easier to limit and undo the follies of a Trudeau government than to restore the necessary common sense and good judgment to a depraved electorate willing to have such a man for their leader. 
The problem is much deeper and far more serious than Mr. Trudeau, who is a mere symptom of what ails Canada. Blaming the Prince of the Fools should not blind anyone to the vast confederacy of fools that made him their prince. Canada can survive Trudeau, who is, after all, merely a fool. It is less likely to survive the multitude of fools who made him their prime minister, end quote. And you know, that's the reality that all people fighting for freedom have to face when they go into elections. This idea that you're going to win a lot of votes in an atmosphere or, or an environment like that is just not possible. There's a lot of work has to be done to educate the fools and turn them into something who are worthy of voting. And therein lies the greatest challenge of all, an eternal challenge that we will once again confront as we invite you to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be so, uh, Andy liked preschool, huh? Oh, great. Tell me all about it. Well, he uh, was a little nervous at first. Yeah, well, that's all right. I mean, that's to be expected. But after a couple of minutes, he started to enjoy himself. Yeah, what were his favorite subjects? So, finger painting, uh, blocks, supply-side economics? <laughs> I think he said the part he liked best was sharing time. Uh-huh. Sharing time? <laughs> What's that? One of the objectives of the school is to teach kids that sharing is fun. So everything is shared equally. All the toys in the room belong to the group, and they're considered communal property. What is this, the Karl Marx preschool? (laughs) 